0: Hey, before we start the podcast, I got something you're interested in. So, Iron Source has teamed up with Deconstructor of Fun to bring you Level Up 2021 in late June. It's a virtual game developer conference you just don't want to miss. We'll have five different tracks to choose from, exclusive gaming content, a legit A-list roster of game industry expert, and of course, the crew, the normal hosts. We got myself, Michigan Katkov, we got Eric Kress, Eric Suford, Adam Telfer, and Joseph Kim all hosting this event. It's a perfect way to level up your gaming knowledge. Anyways, there's a limited number of invites, so I suggest you register now by following the link in the description of this podcast. We all know it. Mobile marketing is going through a paradigm shift. With the industry moving towards a more aggregate way of measuring marketing efforts, marketers' ability to measure and understand the impact of their marketing investments is further curtailed. Appsflyer though, is not sitting on the sidelines. The company has set a goal to help their customers and the entire mobile ecosystem to successfully navigate the new era of mobile marketing. And that's where AppSlyer's latest product, the Incrementality Solution, comes to play. It's a product that truly empowers marketers to gain a better understanding of the real value that their marketing efforts hold. Appsflyer's Incrementality Solution is built around remarketing. It simplifies the process of designing, executing, and analyzing incremental lift tests at scale which previously was something that only the biggest players on the market were able to do. With, increman- with incrementality, marketers can focus on the end goal of their test without actually having to worry about the heavy lifting that comes with it. To learn more about incrementality and to read the success stories from publishers like Kabam, I suggest that you head out to appslyers.com. This episode is brought to you by Facebook Gaming. Facebook Gaming is building the world's gaming community by helping game makers, developers, and publishers to build, grow, and monetize their games. They do do this by providing research-based insights, in-depth case studies, as well as a wide variety of educational materials. A recent example of this is Games Marketing Insights for 2021, a report that has just been released and is available to download for free right now. Of course, Facebook Gaming also helps developers and publishers of all sizes to deploy powerful UA and monetization strategies through a range of innovative solutions designed for games marketers in every corner of the industry. Go to fb.gg forward dof for in-depth educational materials, including playbooks, webinars, blogs, and reports, as well as great video content. Hello, everybody, and welcome to This Week in Games 137. We got the crew, but not the whole crew. So we got Adam Telfer, a.k.a. Dude2. You're going to understand why. Um, Myself, Mishka Katkov. Both of the Eric's are out today. Mr. Suford is out in Miami. Don't know what he's doing. Probably, you know, inaugurating the Tilting Points new office. Uh, Eric Kress is out today. Again, taking care of some family business, but he'll be back next week. But it doesn't matter. We got the best cover up for the two Erics. Miss, Mr. Ethan Levy, executive producer from Network, and executive producer on Tetris. Am I correct?
1: Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, yeah. I'm currently I'm the executive producer for the Tetris brand at Network, and then I also work on the Network Scale platform. Mm, kind of just so, trying to what is the
0: net- Network Scale platform?
1: Yeah, that's our uh, publishing effort. We have so it's a combination of it's a big pool of money and then people and technology used to uh, grow games profitably. Uh, We run all of our first party UA for it, for Tetris, Legendary, Funko, Uh, and then we also run the UA. I think we've got 15 or 16 games on it. And I'm basically always looking for new games, be they in soft launch or worldwide. We've partnered with games that have been worldwide for months or years even. But if there's a game we think we can partner with and help grow profitably through user acquisition and through working with people like me and Gina and other mm-hmm. product managers to help improve the game, um, you know that's we're, we're constantly signing new games. So
0: shout out to you Gina. Know. She worked at Singer before, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I know great. her. Yeah, she's she's really good. Um, and you're and actually really just good. It's, you're it's, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. Let me it's, just say one thing to the listeners: you're really good because. I've been to your GDC talks. Like they're like the main thing you have to get into is Ethan's talk on GDC. Uh, if you haven't been on Ethan's talk at, at GDCs, you can still watch them on GDC online. I don't know what the link is, but I'm sure everybody's company has the links. True, you know, true knowledge on on especially live ops. So, so kudos for all the knowledge sharing.
2: Thank you. no, Especially a, your, your your blog posts on things like guilds and I think it was 4X games, right? Like I remember yeah. those actually really really impacting me, pushing me to um, get down to that level before I was making evaluations of the types of players in those groups. Yeah, um, yeah.
1: Awesome. That that really uh, makes me happy that you guys have enjoyed all that stuff that I all those opinions <laughs> I throw onto the internet. Um, I've got a new one coming out in for GDC called "Building the Ten Year Game Economy" that I'm Ooh. pretty happy with. Um, that I think people who listen to Deconstructor Fun would find extremely valuable. So That's uh, hopefully, if you're listening, you uh, you come join the audience uh, for that. It's really got it's not fluff. It's not hype for the company. It's true knowledge from five years of successful live ops on legendary and just like none design of, decisions I wish I'd made differently, basically.
0: none of your none of your uh, talks have been any fluff. they're they're like content dense. so, so that i'm looking forward to like i was looking forward to having you on the podcast we we actually talked about in the last was it last episode when I covered just a little bit about NFTs yeah. and Adam said like, we need to get Ethan here. So, cause he knows everything about <laughs> NFTs. <so I'm> really <laughs> I know
1: very little, but I have loud opinions on the internet. So,
2: <laughs> But the thing is you actually did versus right? the rest, of, the rest right. of us are just throwing shade at it yeah, when yeah. we don't understand it at all. That's, so.
1: that's always been, yeah. that's always been the key to, to the, whether it's the Forex articles or NFTs or just like a casual game genre, I don't understand it's I, I learned it a long time ago working on diner Dash and stuff like that like if something's successful and you don't understand it you have to play it like those players play it and you'll if you stick with it you'll figure it out so like you know six six months playing uh, modern uh, mobile strike six times a day for 10 minutes Ugh. was a huge worthwhile investment in my knowledge as a games operator for
0: sure yeah yeah that that, that, that was a that was a rough game like. Rise of Kingdoms, uh, what was it? Not Rise of Kingdoms, the, uh, the other one. Um, yeah, Rock, Rise of Kingdoms, right? Lilith game. like that. that would be yeah, great. that's
1: Lilith. Yeah. Super jealous of that game.
0: Yeah, that one was beautiful. Anyway, let's, let's jump in. So we got a lot of news to cover today. Uh, not a lot, but interesting ones. We're going to talk about NFTs. So it's almost like a little bit of an interview by Adam. Uh, we're going to talk about your latest Deconstructor fun article on how Netflix could become the Netflix of gaming. And um, just a quick sort of an early sneak peek into Lilith's latest game that soft launch Farlight 84. All right guys let's guys, let's, let's go to the updates. Uh, number one news Pokemon uh, not number one news the first update of of the uh, of the episode Pokemon Go maker Niantic is working on a real world transformers mobile game there was a little bit of a discussion on this i kind of threw (laughs) in like the uh the first pitch on the deconstructor of fun slack channel Uh, a lot of comments adam what do you think about this
2: uh i think your your feedback was pretty spot on which is do we need another transformers game um how big is the transformers ip i actually have no idea um i guess they still have movies there is a ton of those movies um but still my
1: my three-year-old's watching a lot of transformers on netflix okay
2: so this is, this is perfect for three-year-olds then.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm watching with them. Yeah.
2: So, but as soon as we say, okay, Niantic, obviously you're going to be making some sort of location-based game. Um, as soon as I look at that model, we're looking at collection-based games, right? Like all of the location-based games are trying to build up systems that make it very, very relevant and very, very high player value to collect as many things as possible. So when I look at an IP, it's basically how deep is that bench of characters that I would actually want to collect even just inherently transformers there's also news about like a witcher um, location based game and also a pikmin based um, location based game like i don't think any of these ip really have that deep of a bench and i think they're all just going to end up in a situation where like jurassic world alive you kind of need to design for player value in completely different ways so i would say many of these games should be leaning into say the rpg part instead of being just a location-based collection game So, again, I would be trying to build a very, very deep CC RPG first and a location-based game almost second.
1: Yeah, I I agree with that. Um, I mean, Pokemon Go is like perfect product market fit for location-based game because the core fantasy of the game and of the world is that you're this person and you walk around a magical world filled with yokai and you collect them and they become your best friends and then you go fight other yokai. Like, so it's it's kind of obvious that Pokemon Go was a world smashing hit because it gave, it would be like if a mobile game let you fly around like Iron Man, like not, not made you feel like it, but actually let you fly around like Iron Man. It was perfect for what the fantasy is. And when we saw, you know, Harry Potter, which is a giant IP, was not able to repeat that success because like the fantasy of Harry Potter has, has very little to do with walking around and, and collecting magical creatures, and so I I agree that um, probably the the route to success is to use known free to play tactics, and that the location. But you know, I think AR can be really valuable for either driving virality or for making really good u- looking ads that look unique. Um, I will say that I. I you know, if I think about two kids in the schoolyard, like two 13-year-old boys holding up their phone and having like a giant robot battle, that could be a true word-of-mouth virality moment. So like mm. that that could tap into the core fantasy of Transformers in a really interesting way. Uh, Witcher is a bizarre, it's an odd choice for, for a location-based game, in my, my opinion. And Pikmin, uh, you could probably do a consumable 4X game on on pikmin because that's kind of you know it's a super fun game and it's about throwing your troops into battle so there's not really characters as much as there's consumables that might be a new game style for them yeah. it's a
2: four four x location based game where you've but that, that like actually that. has existed before right i think it was like massive damage did that way back in the day where there was actually mm-hmm. like location based sections which were the march to war nodes interesting okay
0: yeah, yeah it it can, what, one of the points that came out on the uh, on the on our Slack channel was um, somebody mentioned that hey, you know the uh, the Kabam Transformers game got like 44 million installs. Like, there's clearly a demand, and that's actually a good example of a of a pro- poor product market fit because the Kabam Transformers games was essentially. Um, a reskin of their Marvel fighting game. And it was a Transformer fighting game, which on paper makes all the sense. But the lack of characters was really the Achilles heel of that game because it's really hard to name more than maybe three different Transformer characters. Like there's the Bumblebee, of course, has its own movie. There's the, um, the um, Autobot. No, what's the... Uh, Optimus, what's the Prime. Optimus Prime. Yeah, exactly. Optimus
1: Prime, true. Starscream. All right, you're uh, naming... Megatron, me.
0: Unitron. Come on, guys. I know the Megatron. <laughs> like, that's my thing. And I used to play with Transformers as a kid. Like, it's it's a fun IP, but like, what's the product market fit? And when it, gets, it comes to collection, like this Kabam game, um, despite having... Like, I remember playing it. It was really, really well made. Uh, it had more depth, in my opinion, in terms of systems Dad, than the, than the, uh, the Marvel... Uh, Marvel fighting game, nevertheless, quite quickly tanked, like forty-four million installs according to Sensor Tower, and only twelve million in revenue. Compare that to the Marvel game that crossed way over a billion. So that kind of speaks volume of of what kind of games, uh, like what what is the uh, what is the product market fit for a Transformers IP? Yeah. Anyway, well, now that we're t- talking about Transformers, so uh, a little bit of an update on the uh, the Boom Beach Frontiers that that we covered last week. So actually, we received some feedback from John Erner, CEO of Space Ape, and he allowed us to share this feedback that he wrote us. Firstly, he talked about Rival Kingdoms was not their last mid-core game, as we said on the podcast. In fact, Transformers Earth War was, according to Sensor Tower, 22 million installs for the Transformer game Lifetime, 82 million in net revenue, so gross revenue way over 100 space ape has done a great job on this likely very very profitable even if there is a revenue split existing with hasbro secondly he mentioned he talked about the uh the play test that they're going on so primary goal of stress testing new tech uh secondary goal of testing is is to sets on also on android and they're successful there thirdly they're testing the core mechanic so they want to see how they stick around but thus far he gives us a day seven number which is incredibly impressive and um, he refers a lot in his email to Adam as as podcast dude two, mentioning that uh the dude two is right in terms of plenty of installs and liquidity. So uh, what John talks about is is in my opinion pretty much exactly what we talked about in the podcast of, of why they're doing this type of a testing. We also talked about it being like Brawl Stars, and, and John says it's it's not Brawl Stars but similar albeit a bit older broader target demo. And the way Space Ape has put it, it Brawl Stars having a baby with Battlefield. Interesting. With some a Clash Royale DNA. And there will be three-person squads in a nine-person team. Less twitchy, more movement, more team, clan-oriented than Brawl. There's all the basic things that Brawl Stars has learned, like the auto-aim. Uh, there's a cover mechanic that you can see in the videos. There are vehicles, control points. When I was looking at it, and the game that I wanted to mention in the last episode was Tactical. If you guys haven't played it, that one is, is like counter-strike meets brawl stars and that in my opinion is a little bit closer to what where he's positioning this like battlefield meets brawl stars tactical is actually the game like it's a it's a it's a pretty Got cool it. looking cool looking top down much more hardcore looking looking game <laughs> let's move forward uh he mentioned the team size is currently 40 similar size than brawl stars team john mentions that dude Do- Two is totally right that they made the wooga mistake of going too broad so this is an interesting self-realization from the CEO. To what
1: what does that mean? Uh, so Adam, it's, it's, to-
0: it's my new name,
1: supposedly. New <laughs> <podcast>. <laughs> no, 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 not that. What is, what, is, what is too broad? What what did you mean? What was the Wooga mistake of going too broad? Uh, so after, what was it? Diamond
2: Dash, um, Jelly Splash, I think it was like 2010, 2011. Wooga basically said, as we move on to mobile, we're going to be going to a lot of different genres. So they tried mm. RPG, they tried um hidden object which they succeeded in Uh, they also tried like simulation they did a lot of different things Um, mid-core yeah mid-core core core, everything really um and just wanted to try out a whole bunch of things uh and in the end ended up focusing down on narrative driven games hidden object which is really their secret sauce right Um, so i think in that time as well everyone was really really drinking say the supercell kool-aid Um, And saying, like, let's build out these kind of green light processes so that these teams can build the game that they've always wanted to build um, and then allow those teams to make their own decisions. And then that forced the studios to go pretty broad. And that's why something like Space Ape, you have a lot of games and a lot of different genres.
1: So got it. So here Space Ape is kind of agreeing with what y'all were talking about on the previous episode where you said they... They had games in a lot of genres and not a particular core focus.
0: Yeah, and recently, when, when and you don't... it was a mistake. Exactly. You know, he's saying that this is much more focused for them because it's in the uh, in the same uh, wheelhouse as Rumble League. That was the game that they were building for a long time, kind of like their version of Brawl Stars. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't launch globally, but, you know, there's years of experience and probably all the tech where they could have picked up really quickly from where they left off and, and kind of continue with this. So in that sense, they're honing in on this genre mastery. I wouldn't say that Space Ape is ultra focused right now. Like when you compare it to, I don't know, let's say studio like Hutch, another London based studio that only makes car games for the last 10 years. Of course, they do car games in different type of like management, racing, drifting, like that kind of stuff, but it's still a car game. So they're able to, to push into that genre. Uh, in Space Ape, like they have build and battle games that they're doing in live ops. They got that new music game that apparently is, is doing nicely. Uh, they They're doing top down shooters. That's already a three three different genres that are widely widely different from each other. I don't know if they're still doing the fast lanes, which is a sort of like a hybrid casual racing game that they did uh, pretty well on. But you know, that's at least three different genre for for one studio. So he talks about Boom, Be- Boom Beach being huge. He mentioned that it's it's you know it's a, especially big in U.S. and China. He talks about the 350 million lifetime installs, significant name recognition. Boom Beach is, has exactly the same amount of installs as Heyday. And Heyday did a brand extension, and this is a brand extension from Boom Beach. Now, when Bo- when when Heyday did the brand extension with a puzzle game, same audience, different game, couldn't scale up. Now they're doing Boom Beach, same audience, different core gameplay. And the only difference also between Boom Beach and Heyday is that Boom Beach hasn't had a, a proper update in about like two years. So versus Heyday is actually still getting updates and it has actually a, a live op team. So,
1: yeah, this is, I mean, it's a bet I'd take. It seems like a really good bet to me. Yeah. It's got a lot of competitive advantages.
0: But yes, he, he, uh, I have to mention like he, he ends his very informative email, uh, with a, with a little bit of a weird sentence, like after giving all this information, he (laughs) says, I'm going to quote, okay, come on guys, play stuff, be informed. That's your brand. At least on paper, these podcasts (laughs) are lazy. I would say, Yeah, <laughs> uh, hey, everybody has an opinion, and this is a platform, so we'll give him uh, his opinion. Okay. Uh, the uh, the way to need us, you know, we got a lot of things right, given that we only had the gameplay video. He mentioned that we will get the test slide builds. We never got those. We are happy to play, and I think we were very complimentary towards Space Ape. But I do get John, you know. I'm sure the way he listened to this podcast was, he. I got this message on like Friday late evening. I'm sure he listened. Right.
1: How, was it 4 a.m. or 5 a.m.? Like, yeah, yeah. like, Was he like, spinning
0: all yeah. night on this? Exactly. Think? So, so I'm, I'm trying to put myself I've done in his shoes. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, so what happens? So somebody probably comes to him like, hey, dude, they're talking shit about your latest game. He's like, where? And then he kind of fast forwards to it, listens to what we're saying and writes the feedback at the same time. But not kind of listening what we're saying, (laughs) and then ending on on that sort of a you know kind of like angry. Don't talk bad about my game, even though we didn't. We just gave normal critical feedback. But um, to conclude, I think we all remain big fans of of Space Ape, hoping that their game in all their games and actually in all of their genres they enter do really well. And we truly wish that Boom Beach Frontier does at least as well as Brawl Stars, and that's their first billion dollar game. And and they just ball out with it. So that's that's uh that's how I want to conclude our first take. or actually, second take on Boom Beach Frontiers. Adam. Yeah, I think it's valid criticism, and I would like to
2: actually hear more criticism like this because I'm assuming like we throw shade at a lot of different companies, a lot of different game teams, all working incredibly hard. Um, like I think actually, Ethan, I, <laughs> we did a podcast on Tetris, and I was like, oh come on, Tetris. Oh um, yeah, that was that was
1: before that was before it was launched. I, uh, okay. I remember yeah. that one. I was in an airport <laughs> bar. I might have had to order a second uh, bullet bourbon while listening yeah. to that one.
2: Yeah. And uh, I'm sure you were swearing under your breath at me and want to prove me wrong. <laughs> um, but I think sometimes Wait. when Wait till we they play we're...
1: Tetris Royale, those fuckers and yeah. Deconstructor. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. Um, but sometimes, like when, when we're being critical of games and game companies, we're not being clear on our, our context of evaluating things. Like when we're looking at something like Boom Beach Frontier, I'm evaluating the context of, would you believe this game based on the video is going to make a billion dollar lifetime, like a Brawl Stars. So competing against the Brawl Stars. Um, So I'm going to be very, very critical at that. Right. So I'm saying, does the game fix a lot of the live model costs of Brawl Stars, right? Being, um, being in the same model in this context, it's also easy to throw claims like MOBAs never work. Right. Um, Or the, um something like the um um, brawl stars performance like does this ip actually give a leg up over that because i think if the context is can the game eventually grow to become profitable for space ape and will this game be fun and delight the fan base of supercell fans i think both of these questions are absolutely yes right space ape is a great team um so i think sometimes we are a little bit flippant or dismissive because we don't actually give the context of which we're evaluating Mm -hmm. so i think for that john is right um and yeah, my name's not Dude Two. <laughs> That's my only feedback to John. Um, anyways, in terms of E3, I think we're going to cover that um, next week when Eric's back, just so we got two kind of HD PC console people on the pod. Um, but there was, of course, a lot of great announcements that we'd love to cover: Battlefield, Halo Infinite, Infinite and Xbox Game Pass. Um, Ethan, you want to cover something about Ubisoft?
1: Yeah, yeah. I wanted to cover two pieces of E3 news that tie into my two uh, topics and articles we're going to talk about. One was, uh, since we're going to talk about Netflix and, and games companies doing media and media companies doing games, uh, one of the pieces from Ubisoft Forward was the Werewolves Within trailer. And like, on its own, it's a great trailer. It looks like a really fun movie. I'm I'm pretty sure I'm going to like it. Um But then like there's this one tagline in it where it just says like based on the popular VR game and I had to look it up. I didn't know Werewolves Within was a game and I feel like I read every headline and have a near encyclopedic knowledge of games. And like there's a uh, VR game from four or five years ago called Werewolves Within set in a medieval fantasy town that's just based on the classic party game Werewolf. And now Ubisoft is part of producing a werewolves within movie that's not set in a fantasy. That's not, you know, it's not like a blockbuster IP and I just go, why? Like why is Ubisoft making this movie or why is this movie being made at all? Like it looks fun. It looks like a cool thing, but it feels like it's complete. It's not like the Assassin's Creed movie or or the uh, Prince of Persia movie. This isn't a summer blockbuster. It's just like a weird story. Thing they're doing, and I just question what the strategic value of this franchise is for this movie. This movie could exist without the franchise. It's just very. I
2: think it's sometimes to best to like not think too hard about Ubisoft strategy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, it's cut cut off like a lot of making a movie
1: because they wanted to make a movie, which I certainly want exactly. to make a yeah. movie. I get it.
0: It, it has yep. taken Ethan like about 20 minutes to start throwing shade on this podcast. Like this is, this is what it does. <laughs> like now you're like, Hey, um, I just kind of want to question why Ubisoft is doing this. Like this is how easy it is. So, so yeah, you yeah. can fall into the, uh, to the loop.
1: <laughs> it's, it's easy to be part of the snarky peanut gallery. I, I look forward to the, uh, to getting the, uh, the angry 4am email, which I so deserve for that. And for any other comments I make today. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention was uh, on the blockchain front because that's the other thing I'm kind of here to talk about was you know, mythical raised uh, 75 million dollars recently. They've got a great executive team, um, some great talent, great looking art. Uh, I watched their full E3 keynote. and um, some of the I, the comments in the stream were especially, uh, uh, you know, what you'd expect from a gamer audience watching it. The, the keynote I felt was very light on gameplay and mostly talked about blockchain and different things around blockchains and partnership with different vinyl toy creators and Burberry and like Dead 5 and like I'm buying the Dead Mouse bl- Blanco. I'll just say that straight up. But, um you know, I, I worked for one of their execs, Pete Holly, he's their chief product officer and he's a very smart, talented uh, game creator, former EP of Burnout has a long history, made a lot of games. So like, I won't count out anything Pete's involved in and and he's just the person on their team. I know. Um, But if, if you watch the videos of Blankos or you can, it's, it's early access. I played it yesterday and it feels like a not good enough uh, fall guys right now. Uh, It's, it's a 3d platformer race uh, that doesn't have like the physics interaction that creates those viral moments of fall guys. And so like, it's it's interesting to see the disconnect between um, Blanco NFTs selling out, you know, four thousand of them selling out for twenty bucks a pop. I'm sure this Dead Mouse one's going to sell out. Um, seeing like the articles, like John Jordan put out about Blanco's marketplace, and seeing the seventy five million dollar raise, and then you play the game. I mean, they have seventy five million dollars uh, in just this raise. They have they have a lot of time to make this game great you know make it a platform like roblox and stuff but um it's just i i think there's something very interesting going on in the nft space where there's you know at some point all these people who start these ecosystems and make these games whether it's blankos or the sandbox game or like i'm you know i'm clearly trying to make an nft game like all these games will have to launch at some point and it'll be really interesting to see what happens to the real money ecosystem and um economy once the games launch.
0: Interesting. So, so basically you're saying that the, uh, the game is not quite there, but the NFTs is a cool thing.
1: Yeah. I mean, they look, they look great. Um, clearly they have investors excited. They have some section of players excited. And my big question is like, are they going to build a game that has 10 year retention? Mm-hmm. Cause if not, like is the dead mouse Blanco that I buy when it drops this summer is it ever going to increase in value? Like only if it has a massive audience over a long period of time. Magic style.
0: Yeah, that's and that's the most challenging thing about the uh, the game companies that raise based on NFTs is like they're not successful games yet. Like they're not the ten year games, and now they are selling this unique digital content for something that is not something that people even interact with. So it's uh, it's like a chicken and egg type of a problem.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah, I
2: think as soon as you start, like, if we can, let's transition into this whole NFT discussion, right? let's
0: talk NFT. Because
2: um, as soon as you start talking about that, I'm thinking about games in the context of like a house of cards. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think a lot of time investors get really, really caught up at the top level of that house of cards, right? Like the metaverse, social interactions, um, or things in this case, like NFT and blockchain. When the bottom of that pyramid, the bottom of that house of cards is obviously making a successful game which I think, as we all know, is all incredibly difficult yep. to begin with, right? Um, so I think I'd love to really, really break into that is, is talking about like Blanko's obviously coming off that $75 million raise, right? Um, in, in the context of um, NFTs, do you see it as kind of like a value add, like an incremental value add or something that actually needs to be baked in from the core in order to build that that strong service?
1: Yeah, right now, um, where the ecosystem is now, I view um, NFTs as something that will be successful when you build a game entirely around it, right? Like uh, if, if it's hard to balance the game economy, manage the game economy for something like Legendary that's on its like fifth anniversary and you have to think about You know, not only um, game economy in terms of currencies, but also power economy of the heroes and like long term player progression and all that. Like um, my personal hypothesis is bolting NFTs into a game like that that wasn't designed for it is not going to be very successful or is only going to have like a minimal level of success and that this is a new medium, a new format. And you have to build a game from the ground up around the idea that players earn part, own part or all of this game economy and can sell it to other players, one. And two, that um, you need to focus on long term retention of your players and of your spenders, especially because um, if a player can sell an object, uh, a permanent object from, to another player and you only get 10% of that revenue, like unless the heroes are just uh, appreciating and value so much, um, you're probably going to see less revenue from uh, uh, those secondary hero sales than you would from like just launching new heroes in gotcha every week. Right. And the, the most important thing like it is with any of these games is going to be long-term player and payer retention. And just like, to you know, if I want to build a 10 year game, 20 year game around player ownership of, of goods, like I think right now you have to build that game from the ground up, especially when it's really new and untrusted or, or like unproven on a large scale. Once there are, you know, let's say we're fast forward five years into this and like it, it there are known formulas for how to put NFTs into games. I think it'll be a uh, something like ad monetization subscriptions iap gotcha guilds any any of these things that that operators like us look like as gears that can slot appropriately into games at any part of their life cycle as long as you design them smartly
2: but some some like thought experiments here right like you're talking mm-hmm. about in the context of like ad monetization which mm-hmm. um if we look at the transition of mobile free-to-play mm-hmm. games as they added ad monetization right they began mm-hmm. just kind of impacting um very specific economies and in, in fear of inflation mm-hmm. of of key economies right so they found ways to make that addition work in the case of like nfts i see that bottom of the pyramid still so difficult right like making a fall guys obviously is a once in a decade type of opportunity when you look at the track record of mediatonic who built that um so if i was like say if i was mediatonic right now and i looked at this and i said look we could potentially add nfts to this game for our cosmetic system so it becomes just like CS:GO where you have Mm a procedural generation of cosmetics added on top of the system and the benefit that we see is instead of selling all those cosmetics directly, we could be, you know, building evangelists because now we're actually effectively allowing players to earn money when they play our game and be able to sell the stuff that they earn uh, mm-hmm. to other players, right? So we section off a, the, just the cosmetics part of my economy yeah. to be able to
1: impact on F- NFTs. Do you think that can work? Um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think if it was designed and architected really properly. So, like, just listening to you say that, um, if I were running Fall Guys Live Ops and I wanted to turn all skins into NFTs, um, this to me would not be a revenue play. It would be a retention play. The idea would be that players, by earning in game or buying these things that have tangible real world value, it will get them more invested in the game and likely to stick around for longer. And I think that's you know that's probably a worthwhile experiment to do. Um, I would view it much like when we did the VIP subscription service in Legendary, the idea was we're giving away over $100 worth of value for $20 a month or 25, I can't remember what the price is, but that was not a revenue play. We were not making more revenue from our spenders, we were actually making less in order to retain them over a long period of time by by rewarding them for that spend. So um, if I were to do cosmetics in Fall Guys as, as NFTs, it, it would be uh, with an eye towards long-term retention and not towards monetization. And th- th- that would be yeah. kind of how I would approach it.
2: So then going further then, you're looking at a say a, a durable economy with a very mm-hmm. finite number of things like we can procedurally generate cosmetics but yeah. you can't create that much variation i'm assuming there's some sort of finite level of, of interest in those uh in those cosmetics and as well if this is solely a retention play then you're really eating into the monetization of, of the game which is solely sold on cosmetics right
1: uh, yeah i mean i'm i'm not super i i've played fall guys a little bit but um I mean, you would still so sorry. You would still generate revenue through the primary sales of those uh, NFTs. You would want to give some away for gameplay as well. So let's imagine every week my live ops team turned out um, uh, th- five different skins you could earn. Um, two of those I'd put on sale. Three of those would be in-game rewards. So I'd make revenue off the the ones that are sold. And, you know, they would each have a limited quantity and uh, then I would generate secondary revenue over a long period of time from the secondary sales. But the the idea would be, let's say I'm making less money through that mechanism than I would through just selling these skins through gotcha or some sort of gotcha plus, you know, um, crafting mechanic. Um, And I'm sacrificing that early revenue uh, under the idea that I'm going to keep people happy for longer. And thus make more money from them in the long term, which is, yeah. you know, generally where I'm, especially in this post IDFA world, like where it's only going to be harder to acquire spending players. Um, I personally think that uh, long-term pay of retention is like the thing to optimize for and the thing to focus on, and not, you know, daily revenue targets or monthly revenue targets. But in these
2: in in these worlds as well, like the NFTs, you talked about like the take that are they still taking like 10 percent of each one of these transactions back to the developer?
1: Um, Well, I mean, it depends. Right. So like that, that's the promise of NFTs or part of the promise of it for creators. Um, So imagine, let's say uh, uh, um, uh, Fall Guys did a, a skin creator program where if you submit a skin and we release it in the game, you get half of all royalty revenue on that skin forever. Um, it's half of, and the royalty is 10%. So like one, there's no industry standard. Um, so like, for example, I'm, I'm about to sell NFT collectibles for Legendary on the website OpenSea as, as, a, as a experiment. And I was looking at OpenSea and Rarible. And theoretically, or like the PR promises that uh, we will get whatever royalty we set of secondary sales from those forever. Now, here's the thing. The whole promise of NFTs is that they're decentralized. So there's nothing preventing a person from taking an object on Rarible and selling it on OpenSea since those two sites actually support that interconnectivity. Um, I can't take a, an NFT. It's not truly fully decentralized yet. I can't take an NFT from Rarible and sell it on Foundation, right? I don't think. Um, um, and also, like, I could sell it directly to a player. There's nothing preventing me from transferring it from my wallet for, to your wallet for a Venmo payment, right? Um, anything, so like, if you sell something that was minted on OpenSea, on OpenSea, if, you're, if your consumer does, you get the royalty. If they sell it off of OpenSea, which is kind of the whole point of it, um, it's not built into the smart contract. It's not entirely clear to me. Uh, and I don't think you'll get that secondary revenue, right? So in the case of Fall Guys, are they on a public blockchain or a private blockchain? Like um, the the way they ensure that the current, with the current tech um, and the current platforms, the way they ensure that they get a, a, a revenue, a royalty revenue on secondary sales is really operating a private blockchain and only allowing players to sell amongst themselves on a Fall Guys owned marketplace, right? Which is you know that's what wow. NBA Topshop yeah. does, right? Like I can't the, take my oh. Top Shop moment and sell it to Mishka on open an auction on OpenSea. I yeah. can only sell it on the the Dapper NBA Topshop marketplace. So there's a there's a there's a difference as yeah. far as I understand. Right. Like I'm I'm actually a pretty new convert and there is a lot of stuff to understand in this space. But as far as I understand, there's no actual standard of recurring royalty revenue forever on NFT objects.
2: Wow, because that starts to challenge a like the whole decentralized nature of blockchain. If that's true, yeah. right? Obviously, we, we would need to figure out some experts and see if we could challenge that. Because I'm assuming like a lot of this charge is around this decentralized ledger, yeah. right, to allow those types of, of transactions to happen. But then, as a developer. Like it say say if I'm mediatonic again for for fall guys right, yeah. what's the the difference of say, um, in a world where they hadn't been acquired by Epic, they built this thing on Steam and use Steam's marketplace, which obviously is a very centralized service, but yeah. one where they can actively control, shut things down, make things work in the case that their economy starts changing, right? Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. To me, so my my uh, personal opinion right now is that the um, key thing that NFTs and blockchain bring to the table is consumer trust, right? I don't know what, like um, the whole reason I got involved in NBA Top Shot, like when, when executives and VCs internally at network were talking about it and trying to get me excited about it, I was like, not, I have not been on team blockchain for the past, Decade, right? I was like, no, blockchain for gaming is stupid. I'm not going to have anything to do with it. This is a waste of time. Anything MC Hammer is talking about on Clubhouse is snake oil, right? That was literally three months ago, my position. Uh, and then, you know, Neil said, like, just go play Top Shot, go do Top Shot for a couple of days, sniff around, see what you, you find. And I live out in South Carolina, right? I'm not in Silicon Valley. My dad friends are normal people. They're not, they don't live on the internet. They're not VCs and they're not entrepreneurs. They're just like normal dudes. And so I'm swinging, swinging one of my kids and one of my friends goes, hey man, have you heard about this NBA Top Shot? My brother-in-law has this account and the account is worth $15,000. And that was the start of among my group of five dad friends, six dad friends, like three months worth of that being the only thing we texted about. Was NBA Top Shot, and only one of those people even liked um, liked the NBA, right? So to me, this is this is kind of the aha moment that like there was enough trust in this system. These guys don't know about blockchain. They don't care about decentralization. They don't care what a, um, a, a whether a token has voting rights or not. Like all of the this like web utopia stuff doesn't matter. But for them, like the marketing of blockchain and of NFTs has reached that point where they have trust that like these moments have value, and as long as other people are willing to buy them, they're willing to get in the queues and like get to them, right? So it's kind of that that trust that and the marketing buzz that 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 I think is the right now in this moment in time the primary um, thing that NFTs and blockchain bring to the table.
2: And so do you think that this could be actually be sustainable like we're we're looking at nfts obviously off of its high earlier on this year right um still like bitcoin off of its high as well but still forty thousand dollars right do you think this can actually sustain and grow
1: yeah yeah so i'm i mean i want to build uh uh blockchain based game right now. And, and the reason I want to do it has nothing to do with the financial hype and everything to do with players and player emotion, right? So like I'm I'm fundamentally a game designer. That's like my core pillar of strength. And if I look at Legendary, and I'm sure you guys feel this way about games you've run, I've like, I'm, I'm still dissatisfied with event rewards, right? We might have an event where a player or a group of players play eight hours a day, spend thousands of dollars each to be the number one or number two guild or, you know, a top hundred player. And then I look at that and the incentives, like the primary incentive is bragging rights and like positive reinforcement and like what you get on the leaderboard. You know, in Legendary, it took us a long time to make those legend the the key rewards even meaningful in the, the power ecosystem. For a long time, we were giving you like rare, but trash cards that had no value. And so as a designer, that's something where I always look at and I'm like, if we could have improved that, we could have had an even bigger outcome on Legendary. And then I think about the first um, NFT pack I opened, which was a Top Shot pack. I spent $100 and in my head, I'm like, this is so stupid. If I wasn't able to reimburse this $100 at Network, I would never buy this. And, and I didn't reimburse it. And the reason is because I drew a $1,600 card, right? So this was part of the strength of the system is that there was not only a marketplace where I could sell that card right after buying it, but there was a tool, Evaluate Market, where I could look up the value of my item. And like when I saw that I had a $1,600 card, I felt awesome. I was like, Hell yes, this is the future. NFTs are the thing. Right? Like, that was my moment of conversion. And if I yeah. that didn't happen, if I had pulled like a, if I had gotten eighty dollars worth of value out of that gotcha pack, I, I probably wouldn't be here today. Um, just
2: just thinking but, about the economics of that, right? Like as a game designer, I'd be like, sure. The first time you open up that that gotcha yeah. pack, we'll make sure that you get something crazy yeah. valuable, right? Yeah. But like you're you're talking about like this can only happen when this is going up, right? Well,
1: that that was pure randomness. But so my my theory right now is um, if I can make you play the game and get a hero and that hero has real value, you know there's a market you can sell it on, or you open a gotcha pack and you get something with real value, or you win an event or get like a rare drop in an event and you get something. It, it almost to me doesn't matter if it's a cosmic LeBron James worth $200,000 or it has a $10 resale value. If you get something and you know that there's only one of them in the world or two of them in the world and own it, you're going to feel awesome. And it's mm-hmm. that emotion. Even, even if it's
2: just like a string of numbers attached yeah. to the LeBron James. And there's a lot of LeBron James obviously out there. It's just, you're getting yeah. this string you, of numbers. M- more
1: of Yeah, more more thinking about it in like the CCG space, because that's that's obviously kind of one of my expertise is like, um, if I make a game that's not like Puzzle & Dragons or Legendary, where you're earning hundreds and hundreds of cards, right? You're just uh, every moment, but like cards are scarce and rare. And when you own one, it's like, oh, this is one of 4,000 and only 4,000 of this will ever um, exist or only two of them will ever exist. And I get to choose what I do with it. Like, I think you'll feel really awesome right? I, I already know how to embed utility that people value into digital collectible cards. And now I think I'll make them feel even cooler if they actually own that thing and they're able to trade it or sell it or just hold on to it. And so only, that's Only if you can why... effectively
2: say procedurally generate that content so that that's even possible, right? Like if you're talking about a Hearthstone thing where you have to, on day one, have tens of thousands of different cards that all have- different utility right yeah you you need a way to be able to actually procedurally generate that effectively
1: i I think you're going to have a lot harder time running uh hearthstone or i mean the the way i would think about it is that you're you're um you know when you would play magic when back when i played a long time ago there was unlimited and then there was you know the expansion sets and like any card in unlimited would be printed an unlimited number of times. So I think if you were to run a Hearthstone, you would have to have some set of cards that could be earned with with no, you know, endless issue that had utility, that you could build good decks around. And then you would, every time you made an expansion pack, it would be a tough, you would need to release enough cards in that set so that every player in your audience has an opportunity to get some of them. Um, But you would have a limited issue. And some of the cards, like rare cards, would be truly rare. And they might not even be the best card. Like they might not be great tournament cards. But if there is a game with an audience like Hearthstone and there is an expansion pack and there's a card that there's only 50 of, somebody, you know, there are 50 people who are going to value it just for collection's sake, even if it's not a Black Lotus or a, you know, a card that has ridiculous OP value or utility in a tournament format
2: so my, i guess my last question here then is around kind of the future of nfts are obviously tied to somewhat say procedural generation of content or cost effective generation of content and rarity systems so obviously loot boxes are getting heavily more heavily and heavily scrutinized um, as well especially when there's a cash output from that mm-hmm. random generation system can NFTs still exist if regulation comes down and prevents these types of systems?
1: Um, yeah, I think so. I I, I don't want to tip my hand too much because I think I've got something really unique and like some unique insight I'm building a concept around, but like I'm, I'm trying to build a CCG with no loot boxes in it. Um, and I think that game is a hundred million dollar business a year business without NFTs and with NFTs, I think it could be like a five hundred billion, you know, million to a billion dollar a year business, like in success. Yeah. So, I th- I think that there is, um, there is a way to uh, uh, monetize uh, free to play games without loot boxes. It'll it'll just take uh, you you and still give players the emotional payoff. Still generate significant revenues. You just we just need to find new game systems. So, I feel the same way about that in non NFT games as, as I do in NFT games.
2: But to peel back the curtain a little bit, because I'm assuming you want to hold that a little bit close to your chest. Yeah. Like you, you take out randomization. Yeah. All you're left with is say time. I didn't
1: say I'm taking out randomization.
2: Okay. Instead so there still is some
1: loot boxes. The game okay. system, right? Uh, would you say, f- for example, that this is not necessarily where I'm going, but like. Um, in Diablo, every Mm -hmm. enemy is essentially a loot box. It's the same mechanic, the same psychological payoff, Mm -hmm. um, but you're not buying those loot boxes. Yeah,
2: yeah. So you're going to that that next step. The same thing that, say, Diablo Immortals just did, which says, okay, we're not going to sell loot boxes, but we're going to sell you you know, rift keys that give you access to an area which gives you better loot and the loot itself is still randomly generated. You're just adding yeah. a few levels of indirection that hopefully government officials are not listening to this podcast <laughs> and, can <Right. laughs> and can say, okay, well, it's not a box, yeah. so it's probably fine. Yeah,
1: I, exactly. I think there are innovations beyond blind packs or even systems that kind of exist right now, and maybe we're just not using them the right way. Um, okay.
2: Yep. So I, I won't dig in any deeper, and I think we've already, like, Eric Kress is probably already, like, turning over in his Hawaiian <laughs> vacation, um, saying we're spending too much time on blockchain. Um, so let's move forward. Let's get into to your article on Netflix and gaming. Yeah, you lost
0: right. me at the basketball. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Got it. Um, yeah, so uh, let's see. I'm really excited. I was really excited to, to post a piece on Deconstructor of Fun uh, for the first time. I hope people in the audience liked it. And, you know, Mishka kind of asked me for like a three paragraph newsletter piece, and I turned it into a 4,000 word master's thesis on Netflix and gaming strategy. Um, I just like writing, I guess. I like having loud opinions on the internet. Um, but, you know, a couple of weeks back, there were articles about uh, Netflix uh, looking for a games executive and wanting to build a um apple arcade like service. Um, this was first broadcast by the website the information which is like a paywall kind of rumory news site as far as i can tell so like this was a nice nice piece of bait uh for game developers at least um so i had i had a bunch of opinions on this first of like uh you know should you know is this actually what Netflix is doing? Should, what business should they pursue, et cetera? So let me just like try and go through the article highlights. Um, the first thing is that we really don't know a lot. Um, this could be a complete red herring. I'm going to assume that all we know is that Netflix wants to get into gaming and they're looking to hire an executive. And one of the directions they're considering is an app, a smaller Apple Arcade-like bundle. Um, I'm sure we've all been in plenty of meetings where, like, you know, we're, we're exploring a new direction and we put together, you know, 50 ideas on, on a whiteboard. And some of them are no brainers and some of them are batshit insane. Those are normally the ones I generate. And so, like, I'm guessing there's a whiteboard somewhere and, like, on it is just, like, circled smaller Apple Arcade. Um, now, but I think I, I'm guessing, I have no insight here, but I'm guessing that their direction is not set in stone. Um, Why would Netflix want to get into gaming? Well, they're a a entertainment company, they're a public company like any other, they wanna grow top line revenue. I have to assume, at the end of the day, uh, it, it would not make sense to invest as much money as they'll have to invest in gaming to make it work, unless it was to at some point generate revenue. It could be directly generating revenue, right? Like they could make a Stranger Things game or co-develop a Stranger Things game, and maybe that game generates $50 million a year for them, or maybe not. Or it could be to uh, reduce churn uh, on their subscriptions. Um, In the previous Twig, Eric Seifert mentioned that their current churn rate is like 2.5%, which is, you know, this is not my area of expertise, but that sounds ridiculously low, and like that it would be very hard to improve it with the games bundle. Like, uh, just imagine there's there's a, a bundle of 50 games that you can sign into with your Netflix account. Um, if I'm done with Netflix because I've watched all the shows or like there aren't hit shows around is is access to a Stranger Things game or a Bridgerton game or a Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead game. Like, is that really going to be the thing that keeps me around for another couple months for $15? Like that just it, it doesn't seem credible to me since it's an add-on. It's not part of what we come to Netflix for. And so like, I don't, I think any, any, if you're trying to justify a games business with a multi hundred million dollar investment for the idea of reducing churn, like you're just playing a spreadsheet game um, that is going to be very hard to, to prove the payoff. Um, so then, so like if it were my business, I'd go after just directly making money um, through games. We're all here because we've all made a lot of money with games. Like we know it can be done. Um, you know, they've got a lot of options, first-party development, third-party development, uh, co-development, licensing. Uh, uh, Mishka, as you said, they could buy Network or they could buy Scopely. I'd be very happy with that first outcome personally. I'm not an officer of the company, but that'd be cool. I don't know. I, I make it very clear in the article that I would love to make a Bridgerton game, um, but that you know, um, so like, uh, but but we really have to ask the question like, what would it take to compete with Apple Arcade, and is that a smart use of money? Is that the right thing to go after in game development? Um, I have a back of the envelope calculation, just pulled completely out of my ass in the article, where I suggest that to have half the game content Apple Arcade does, right? Like let's assume Apple Arcade's going to have 250 games on it when this game comes, when this service comes out and it's anchored to a price of five bucks a month, which is like, there are a lot of great games on Apple Arcade. I'll just cite Cozy Grove, uh, Necrobarista, uh, Necker and uh, what is it? Spire? Spire Blast. Those are all great games. Cyanara Wild Hearts. Like there's like an overwhelming amount of value uh, for five bucks a month. Uh, for me, at least. Uh, it's almost part of the challenge of, of playing Apple Arcade. But if you want to um, compete with that, and let's say you want to launch with half the number of games, you're looking at like hundreds of millions of dollars. I'm I'm estimating like 250 to $300 million. And that's going to come from a combination of like picking up games that developers already have and helping them finish it. It's going to come from uh, making kind of like an average game. You're going to have a bunch of bees in your uh, system. I was guessing like $2 million a game for that. You're going to have some tentpole games. Let's guess those are going to be like $10 million a game. You need to run a publishing org, uh, you know, to coordinate all those games. You're going to need to do marketing for the launch and, you know, sustained interest in that platform. And you're going to need, to continue paying your successful developers for live ops and incentives. Because if this is a subscription business, you need to retain players the same way we do right now. So like in the article, I'm saying like, this is gonna cost like $300 million a year for like three years to even hold a candle to the content Apple has. Plus you're competing for the same developers that Apple is that Google is for the play pass that scopely is that network is with the network scale platform. Like there's a finite world of developers out there. I mean, it's, it's huge, but still like this, this overall as a business does not, I don't, I, I can't build a spreadsheet that I would believe in where this uh, plays out. Right. It does. It just like, doesn't tap into their advantages. Um, And then one thing to think about is like, what, what are the Netflix IPs? Um, do they have an IP advantage that could help them out in mobile? Um, first of all, I'm I'm not a TV person. None of us are. So like, I don't know um, how all these deals are done. But like, a lot of the shows on Netflix, even the Netflix originals, are not. I don't think those are IP Netflix controls, right? Like Voltron is a Netflix original. Can they make a Voltron game? I I don't know. Can they make? They have Transformers originals. Can they make Transformers or He Man? Or, or would they pay the same licensing costs as any of us would if we went after it? And similarly like Bridgerton, which I love, and I think you can make a great Atomi Bridgerton game. Like uh, if I was at Pocket Gems and I'm the BD person at Pocket Gems and I'm not trying to get the exclusive rights to Bridgerton, I, I don't know what I'm doing, right? Like that's a great story-based IP for an audience that we know works, right? But like Shondaland, I think owns Bridgerton, like I don't think Netflix had their name on any of the Narcos games. Right. So I think a lot of these deals are distribution deals that don't necessarily come with IP rights. I would love for someone to educate me on that, but you know, uh, uh to the, to the point, Adam, that you were making earlier about like IPs that are great for mobile games, you know, is umbrella Academy, their number one superhero show great for, uh, mobile games, not yet, maybe six more seasons and a lot more characters, but you take a kind of like B-level uh, IP, like a, a single A IP, Disgaea, right? Like Disgaea, which is like a niche Japanese RPG, is a great IP for um, for uh, free to play mobile games, right? It's it's a game I own. I I was actually playing Disgaea on the Vita two months ago after talking about it with one of my friends. It's like the type of niche I'm into, and Sensor Tower is estimating twelve dollars. Per US install from Deskaya so far, right? Those are just great numbers, right? I don't, I don't know why I'm not seeing more UA ads for Deskaya, but like Boltrend has a bunch of those IP that they've brought to market that are great. And I just don't think like the Netflix IP feels like it's um, branded escape room IP, and it's not hit mobile game IP. Um, so sorry, branded
2: like, as, branded escape room. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, dude, I would play Stranger Things escape room for sure. But like,
2: but like, looking at all these paths you outlined eh. in the article, right? Eh. Uh, I constantly just am coming back to what the baseline is for Netflix, which allows them to focus, which is licensing, right? Yeah. Like they they continue to build out the interactive content, which works well within their app. Yeah. As soon as they start getting into games and start offering a platform, they can't offer it an app because yeah. first party would you know, kick them off the platform. You're not gonna come yeah. onto our platform, side sideload an app and then allow people to play games within it that they're not paying on our own platform, yeah. right? So then as Netflix, you have all this IP that you need to focus on building up. Yeah. Why build a games division when you could license that property out yeah. go low risk and then take all that cash you could be spending on building more content.
1: Yeah, that that's ultimately kind of the, the conclusion of the article is like I think it, I think that Netflix so I think their unique advantage is that they have a cradle to grave relationship with their customers, right? My kids have been introduced to Transformers, My Little Pony, Power Rangers, like they will be introduced to Lego, to Jurassic Park, to bar, they've been introduced to Barbie. Like Netflix is spending millions of dollars creating brand value for other people, right? And my kids, they're three and five. They're going to be in a Netflix house watching Netflix content for fifteen years, as long as Netflix creates me or ke- keeps me. with, with uh, you know, uh, uh, acquisition uh, Bridgerton and uh, <laughs> Much McClellan <laughs> with an acquisition network, <laughs> um, but. I, I think that I don't understand why they are not building more brands that they own starting with their kids programming, right? Like why spend $200 million making Jupiter's Legacy with live action actors, like the most expensive show that's only going to get more expensive each season, right? What they should be doing is saying, we want to build the next Avengers. How did Avengers start? Well, it started with a comic book. So let's do the equivalent of building comic books, but with animated content. And like, if I were Netflix, I would not spend, I think putting $200 million into gaming is premature right now because they need to build the brands that can build that licensing business that will service not only gaming, but toys, books, comic books, plushies, paper plates, balloons, t-shirts, right? Like all this stuff. Like I, why, why are they building Brand equity for Transformers when they should be building it for Netflix bots, right? The way things are going right now, I watched Transformers 30 years ago. I'm watching it now with my son. And if Netflix doesn't change anything, if they keep building brand equity for Hasbro, I'm going to be watching it 30 years from now with my grandson or granddaughter, right? They should, they should look at that and go like, oh, why don't we have our own Transformers, our own Avengers, our own Miraculous, our own Harry Potter, our own Barbie, our own Disney princesses. They are the only media company that has like, the advantages to launch this sort of effort and not in like, the, we're going to make one movie and spend $200 million marketing it and it's going to be a global blockbuster. They could legitimately make 10 different robot shows And A, B, test them all at the same time and figure out which one is the next Transformers and then only invest in that. They could do that without any of us ever seeing it, right? Like they have all the tools. And so to your point, I think they should be building a licensing business that leaves open the door for first-party, third-party development. But to do that, they need to build the brands. And that's where they should be spending their money. They should be building worlds right now. They should be saying, how do I steal Disney's cake, Marvel's cake, you know? Um, actually, well, Disney and Marvel are the same people now. Warner Brothers, cake with Harry Potter, oh, Game it. of Thrones, Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah, the, sorry, the the that must not be named on this podcast.
2: Yes, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah,
1: that's that's my thesis: is that they need to take the money, make a decade long investment in worlds. Halfway into that, they're going to have a great games business.
0: Even thinking really big. Yeah, like it. I like it. Yeah, I mean, Petrovic actually commented on the on the post. I, I put this out on LinkedIn. He he, he mentioned that, hey, like you're, you're forgetting that they already have Netflix, uh, head of interactive games, and they've they've had this person for almost three years. And actually, I looked up that person is called is Christopher Lee. He's a, actually a former CEO of Mass Entertainment, and at Netflix, according to LinkedIn, he's led highly successful partnerships with Fortnite. Rainbow Mm -hmm. Six, Watch Dogs, Far Cry, Free Fire, and Dead by Daylight. And he also mentions that they're developing original games based on Netflix IP in collaboration with showrunners, talent, and developers.
1: Yeah. So, no, the Ubisoft one is probably Money Heist, right? There was a Money Heist event. I don't know what all these other ones are, but these are like the equivalent of Rambo's coming to Fortnite. I think. Yeah, which is he, fine. Are, yeah, that, that's, that's great use of videos. licensing. Yeah,
2: yeah that, no, that's great absolutely. use of license. Yep. Uh, but that's not a games division. That's a licensing division. It's business what, development division.
0: What, what has been I think like the only person who surprisingly was, you know, like a little bit a little bit sour about this was Eric Crest when we originally talked about Netflix going into games, but everybody else has been so complimentary and being like, yeah, this could be a big thing. This is a great idea. Please hire me. This is a great. <laughs> I, I, Everyone like, just wants that Netflix yeah. money. Yeah, okay. and and I I, I was kind of like I've been mean, looking it from the side. I'm like, damn, like Netflix has a really good employer brand value and and all of that. Like people are very positive towards the company and and seem to be very eager to to work there. Because I remember Eric said, "Who wants to work at Netflix?" And we were all like, um. Every they have a, yeah, they have a great culture,
2: right? Yeah, like I've got like three of the books behind me, me too, right, about their they,
0: culture. The you know? No Rules Rule, like that's a fantastic book, and then like you know, so it was a, it was kind of weird. But like I, I would have,
2: not I want to work for Netflix in the context of trying to build a gaming division wow. under a culture that is directed towards media, right? Yeah. It's the same problem that Eric brought up around things like Amazon, right? The Amazon culture is actually counter to productive game development even though it's a great company filled with incredibly smart people
0: yeah but their culture the the way i inter- interpreted from the book like especially the case of um that documentary movie um what's the other the, the steroid movie god damn it uh icarus yeah they they kind of detail that in in their uh, no rules rule book of of making the decision to purchase icarus uh, for a very high number, which was um, much more money than than other documentary movies would cost, almost like double. And the person making that decision, with the context that they knew, pulling the trigger on that, and then becoming a successful, that kind of puts the the um, the element of the culture around individuals making big decisions, um, and that is possible in in this type of uh, environment when they're entering a new market where somebody who is hired for this position actually has the power to make the call versus bringing in a bunch of executives and asking their opinion on something that they don't understand.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think th- to me, the the Amazon gaming to date lesson is like um, all, m- all the money in the world won't necessarily make and and all the key executives of the world, right? Like I used to work for Rich Hillman. He worked for net uh, Amazon gaming. He's a great, games executive, he helped build Madden for Christ's sake, right? Like, and he was just one of many people like, um, it, it, money, money and people alone, it's still, it gives you a leg up, but the games business is a really, really, really hard business. And I think whether you're Amazon or Netflix or, you know, any, any, uh, giant media company, uh, I think the key question is like, what is our competitive advantage and how do we exploit that? to be better at games than anybody else, right? Like otherwise you're just competing in the same business where like your marketing dollars, network's marketing dollars, WB's marketing dollars, they're all competing for the same (laughs) eyeballs, right? So like, what are your advantages that take you out of that? uh, uh, Because otherwise it just comes down to your skill versus someone else's skill. It's the the same game anyone else is playing just, just with a different funding
0: source. Yeah, the, the fundamentals are people, resources, and luck. The, the, those are the three things you need yeah. in games business. And you can't, you know, count out the, the last one. It is very, very important. But of course, it doesn't, luck alone doesn't, doesn't give it. You have you have to have the right people and the, uh, the correct resources. Ethan, what a fantastic guest.
1: Thank you. Thank you. It was an honor.
0: We need to make you a, a you know, a reoccurring guest, a mainstay. Um, i'd, I'd love to
2: know as yeah. you learn more and more about <laughs> nfts has yeah. your opinion changed?
1: Yeah. right we're all I'd like forth. i'd like you
2: personally just to drag me along so i can actually <laughs> understand it mm-hmm.
1: you're looking forward to the drunken the drunken failure cast it <laughs> all fell apart <laughs> nobody <laughs> trusted it nobody trusted it
2: <laughs> player <laughs> trust isn't worth anything in revenue <laughs> <laughs>
1: Okay. Yeah. No. If uh, if uh, if this turns into more than an R and D project, but actually like the next big thing that I invest my time into, I'm absolutely happy to come, keep coming back, and uh, tell you what I'm learning on the forefront of game monetization.
0: What do you know about metaverse? No, come on. Let's not get into that. <laughs> have, I'm sorry. I have to get my
1: baby up from her nap. I don't have another hour. <laughs> maybe, maybe,
0: maybe, few few weeks on that, and and just come on in and just you know make us a believer again on on, on yeah. something that uh, it's not like we're not believers. We're just you know naturally skeptical. We're we're yeah. like what dozen years, fifteen years in the industry, so we're we're yeah. becoming those old dogs. Like I don't know about that. Like that has been tried and tested. So it's right. good to uh, good to have like a fresh eye on on everything.
1: Yeah. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, guys. I really appreciated it. It's a lot right. of fun. I love shouting my opinions onto the internet. And Good. Not to get too much hate back from them.
0: Ah, uh, just just take it. Just take just it. Take it. No. <laughs> just take it. Smile back and say thank you. And thank you everybody <laughs> for listening. Keep the feedback coming. We truly appreciate all the feedback. Read it. You know, if you want us, we can publicize the feedback. If you don't, we'll just still read it. Thank you for it. Improve, and and so forth. Anyways. Talk to you guys next week. Bye.